you know, 2004-ish, you know, the end of 2003, you know, the Super Bowl, those type of things. It's like, whoa, man, this guy is taking off all the way to right. a culmination in 2007. He's throwing 50 touchdown passes. It's like, this can last for a while here. Hey, everybody, what's up? Welcome into another episode of Half Forgotten History. Glad you're with us, and we're glad to be partnering with DraftKings this season. Make sure whenever you download and use the app to use the promo code WINGO for the best results. And speaking of best results, my next guest knows a lot about those things. He's a three-time Super Bowl champion and a member of the last team to pull off what the Kansas City Chiefs are trying to do now in Tampa against his old quarterback, repeat as Super Bowl champs. I'm talking about none other than the longtime New England Patriot, Teddy Bruschi. You know him. Bill Belichick on his retirement said he was the perfect player. So he's the perfect guy to talk to about what the Chiefs are trying to do right now. Repeat as Super Bowl champs. This podcast is brought to you by Microsoft Teams. Where there's a team, there's a way. Microsoft Teams is helping Priority Bicycles transform the way they work. After closing their New York City showroom, they started doing virtual visits on Teams, and now people from all over the world can come into their showroom. Learn more at Microsoft.com Teams. So without further ado, let's bring in the greatest shot putter in the history of Roseville High School in California. <laughs> None other than the guy that Bill Belichick once called the practically perfect player, my good friend, Teddy Bruschi. What's up, Brew? Trey, how you doing? Yeah, high school shot putter, 58 feet, 10 inches. That was my PR. Yes. <laughs> By the way, it is not surprising at all that he exactly remembers what his personal record was in the shot put <laughs> from his high school days. If, if you don't know anything else about Teddy, that is the most on-brand thing. That is the most on-brand thing for Brewski ever. So before we get into a bunch of this stuff in your career, I just have to say, and I, and I mean this, the first time we ever met in a professional setting when you were coming to work for ESPN, was the day before the season opener of what, 2009 or 2008? Uh, what was it? Yeah, yeah, the 2009 season. I believe the opener was the Titans and the Steelers, I think. Yep. And um, yep. that kicked off my career where, I mean, I just, I, I really needed help because <laughs> I didn't know what I was doing. And just previous to the show, when I would ask questions, you would just say, hey, red light. Talking football, that's what we're doing. And it sort of put me at ease, so that really, that really helped me out. Well, listen, I, and I mean this sincerely, they, I've never worked with an analyst who was better, like literally out of the car or out of the parking lot than onto the set than you. No one, I knew from day one that you were going to be great at this, so uh, that, that's how to, uh, sort of we got together. Um, but your career is interesting, and this season is all about rings, and we'll get into what you guys did and what other teams are now trying to do, which is repeated Super Bowl champs a little bit later. But people might have forgotten when you came out of that desert swarm defense at the University of Arizona. Yeah, you were a you were a hand in the dirt down lineman, and when Bill Parcells drafted you, he he was going to transition you to a linebacker. How early in the process did you know that's what they were going to do? On the draft call, really, and that's when Parcells spent about eight seconds with me on the phone before he passed it off to uh, Al Groh, the positional coach, the linebacker coach. But he told me immediately I was going to play middle linebacker and, and help him out on special teams. And, you know, it took me a little self-control to stop from chuckling because uh, I was like, you know, I don't know how to play. Right? It's like inside linebacker. I mean, I've never been in a two-point stance in my life. So, I mean, high school, offensive guard, defensive tackle, DN down at Arizona, uh, sacking quarterbacks and now they wanted to transition me so i knew it was going to be hard 
So what was the hardest part of that transition for you? I would say seeing more than just a tight end in front of you in your vision or like keying the hip of an offensive tackle. That's really what your where your eyes go as a defensive end in that system. And having to stand up, back up, and now my vis- my vision's got to be like this, and I've got to see motions and communicate and do everything. It, I had to transform myself as a player and in terms of how I even watch the game, like when I'm watching film, instead of just watching the linemen, sort of watching the, the receivers' formations first. So it was an extremely difficult transition. How many doubts did you have, like, can I do this at the NFL when I've never done it before, and now they're asking me to do this at the highest level of football? Well, I had confidence that I can do it. I just knew I had to buy myself time because I know that if I, if I couldn't see – if I couldn't show them that I could still contribute to the team somehow that, you know, that progress, that's very slow progress of me learning to be an off the ball linebacker was so slow that I had to prove some value in the meantime. So that's when they, you know, saw that I could still rush the passer, even from the defensive tackle spot, they created a package called cactus because I was from Arizona. So when I would come in and sub packages and be sort of a joker guy that bounced around and and rushed and and did pass rush games and covered backs out the backfield while I was still able to contribute on special teams. So I bought myself time doing that. Was there a moment at a practice or in a preseason game where you did something and you realized, I I got this. I know I can do this. Yeah. 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 I remember the play right now. I intercepted Drew Bledsoe when I stepped in front of David Meggett and I was playing linebacker. And Meg, of course, the old, the great, you know, scat back returner was a great player and was still a very good player. And I covered him in man to man and he broke out on like a five yard option route. And I stepped in front of it, intercepted Bledsoe. And it was like it was it was a combination of me showing improvement, improvement and then finally making a play on a ball. And then we used to have to be able to drive to practice at the old Foxborough Stadium. It was like a five minute drive to either the Rentham State School for Boys or down to the bubble. And uh, Parcell said, hey, Brewski, get in the car. And on our way back after practice, and it was yeah. his old El Dorado Cadillac. And what Bill <laughs> did was talk to me in his car on the way back to the to the stadium in terms of NFL life and what I had to be and what kind of player they projected me to be and how I could take care of myself, you know, non-football things. And really that moment for me was like, okay, it looks like I'm gonna be around if he's making this type of effort for, with me. So I was that was like a moment for me. It's interesting because your career really ran the gamut because Parcells drafted you. You guys got to that Super Bowl where you lost to the Packers with Parcells. Then he leaves. Pete Carroll comes in and you guys had some success under Pete. And then, of course, the reign of Belichick began. How would you differentiate what your Parcells experiences was like compared to the Carroll experience, who, by the way, is a totally different guy and has had massive success in Seattle and what your reign under Bill was like? Yeah, I was really, I'm really grateful to have those three. I mean, I played for three Super Bowl winning head coaches. You know, I mean, I only won Super Bowls with Bill, but uh, lost one with Parcells. But, you know, Pete went on to win one himself. So, you know, that foundation that I had with Parcells and Carroll really helped because I could see like the seriousness of Parcells and I could see the like the the energy and exuberance of Pete Carroll and just that there were different ways to win. 
you know, even though with, I mean, Parcells, we lose the Super Bowl. Carroll, we go, I think, 10 and six, nine and seven, eight and eight, something like that. We just kept going down. And then five and 11 with Bill's first year, you know, it wasn't a lot of a lot of a Super Bowl success, but still just seeing different styles, um, how they handled players, how Bill was with his Bill Parcells and Bill Belichick, how it differed, like how they are with the leaders on the team, because Pete was totally different. I mean, I don't know how many times, uh, you know, off the field things come into conversations with Parcells and Belichick. It's all about business, but Carol was, was more energetic, more personable. So, you know, it was good to see different aspects of head coaches being successful with players. Yeah. I'm not sure you can get more on polar opposites of how Pete deals with his players and how Belichick would deal with his players. I mean, like, that, that couldn't be more of a 180, right? Right. I mean, even, I mean, so even this year with, uh, the social justice initiative and how like forward Pete was in his press conferences and how, you know, uh, you know, hands-on he was. And Bill was really more of a, more of a person that let his players lead the way, you know, sort of giving them support, but let his players lead the way. So that's just different styles, but you're still achieving the same goal. Yeah. And it's all about the team. And that is something that of course, that was a Bill Belichick staple I don't care about your personal stats. We're going to do whatever is best for the team. How much of Parcells did you see in Belichick right away? Um, I mean, you could see the similarities when Bill was with us in 96, even Bill, Bill Belichick, because he was like the uh, right. assistant head coach, but him leaving and coming back, it was, it wasn't night and day because Parcells has a different style, you know, with players also, but so the structure, you know, the importance of every little aspect of preparation was, was very, very similar. I mean, the coaching staff styles and how they were, you know, mirroring his style was also very similar. So, I mean, it was just, I mean, Belichick's a part of a Parcells tree, you know what I mean? So, and that influence was very strong. Yeah. And, and in what ways were they remarkably different in your mind? Uh, I mean, just the fact of the story I told you about Parcells put me in his El Dorado and asked me if I needed an accountant. You know, those type of things. You know, Parcells would sort of dig into you just a little bit more. I mean, but he, he'd show you, he'd love you by digging into you, you know, the insults, the jabs, and then, you know, sort of break you down and build you back up type of thing, but you know, he cared. Um, that was a little thing that Belichick had to get better at as his coach, as his coaching career sort of um, lengthened and he has, but initially he had so much on his plate uh, uh, also being the defensive coordinator, I think that five and 11 years. So that a lot of that wasn't there. Parcells took care of a lot of little things head coaches could do. Belichick ended up getting to that. And I think he is, but it took him a little while to realize that. Yeah. And the Super Bowl 36 season, you know, people look back at it now and and I think they look at it differently than when it was happening because no one expected that uh, out, out of you guys that yeah. year. And it was a rocky start. Obviously, you lose Bledsoe. Uh, Brady comes in and does his thing. At what point during that season did everyone sort of embrace the idea that maybe Bill knows what he's doing here? Uh, I mean, I think. Well, first of all, I mean, there's the whole, you know, Brady coming in for Bledsoe and and then Brady staying in when yeah. Bledsoe was ready to go. And I think that really solidified a lot of things with a lot of players that, well, he means what he says. 
because if you're playing well, he's going to keep you in. And then, you know, if you're doing what's best for the team and winning football games, you're the player that he wants. And so that sort of solidified, I don't care what you've done before, it's what you're doing for us now. I think that was a, a moment when, you know, Bledsoe was very upset about, you know, not being put back in, but still his message rang through with keeping Brady on the field. I think that was a huge thing people overlooked because it was a message to even my Myself, who was in competition with like Brian Cox and Ted Johnson for the middle linebacker in the 4-3 hybrid that we were running at the time, there was really only one middle linebacker. Those two guys got hurt. I came in and I kept playing well. And as those two got healthy, I kept playing. I, I stayed in. So, you know, I said, well, he's doing it with Brady. He'll do it with me. So those type of decisions, players notice. Yeah, and I'll never forget Bledsoe when he was healthy and ready to return. And people forget he almost died because of that. I mean, it was bad. I mean, people sort of brush over that. But he was so angry, but he was trying to say it the right way. Uh, this soundbite will stay with me forever. He said, I look forward to the opportunity to get my job back. I mean, how, how yeah. did that rank in the locker room when you heard that? It was okay because, I mean, we all knew he was upset, you know, the players that Drew confided in. I mean, he's he felt like he should have just been put in. But, you know, if you want to express yourself that way, that's fine because of who he was minus that comment was okay because he was still very supportive for Tom, help him on the sidelines, that type of that type of role he still could play. And it's to his mental toughness, he could still play that role while being extremely upset. You know, and that that was something that you know I myself ended up learning from, and um, him having his moment in the AFC Championship game. Brady yeah. goes down, so it comes in Pittsburgh. Yeah, we win that game, and he throws it to David Patton in the corner. It's like we don't go to the Super Bowl if Bledsoe isn't ready to go. So that was huge. It does speak to the idea of being ready, right? Because so many people could have just said, "Well." I can see the writing on the wall here. My time is done. But no, in the most important stage, to get to the most important stage, he had to be not only physically there, but mentally ready and understand what was going on. And that was the only offensive touchdown you guys scored in that game. Yeah. Yeah. Because we had a punt return for a touchdown, punt return. A field goal for a touchdown. So, I mean, I think Tom might have been only accountable for two touchdowns that entire playoff run. Uh, the scramble versus the Raiders and then the throw to Patton in the Rams game in the Super Bowl. So, you know, that was a, that was a very team champ team oriented championship that year. Probably the one I'm most proud of because of the aspect of how we won it. Yeah. Well, I was, I'm glad you said that because I was just about to ask you that. Cause to me, when I think of the Patriots under Belichick, that 2001 season where there were no real expectations for anybody outside you guys in the locker room and how you just sort of did it, you know, you just, whatever was necessary to find a way to win the game, you found it. And that, to me, became sort of the standard for the Patriots dynasty. You know, I think everybody looks at the Patriots and they think of them in the 2007 season because that was the double middle finger to the world. You know, we're going to run it up on everybody and all that kind of stuff. That was the outlier. The way the Patriots went about winning all those championships and those 10 win seasons and all those AFC East titles is let's just make the little plays to win and make sure we don't make the plays to lose. And that was a big thing with Bill, right? He always would say more games are lost than won. Yeah. And um, yeah, I totally agree with you. And it's just that and for them to have the success over, you know, the elongated period of time, just something happened that I don't think even I was aware that could happen. And that was the development of Tom Brady becoming the quarterback that he eventually became because 
I mean, 2001, yeah, you're doing the good things, you know, just hit the check down, don't mess it up, those type of things. We'll go on yeah. defense, you know, kid, you'll be okay. You know, to where, you know, 2004-ish, you know, the end of 2003, you know, the Super Bowl, those type of things, it's like, whoa, man, this guy is taking off all the way to where the culmination in 2007, he's throwing 50 touchdown passes. It's like, this can last for a while here because of the coach that stresses all those other things that, you know, that the quarterback doesn't have to worry about. And then the quarterback can just be great. It was, it, it just happened. Yeah. It's, it's interesting, right? Cause I think if we're being honest, that was the Super Bowl was not super, that Super Bowl, Super Bowl 36 was not his best game by any stretch of the imagination. But the thing that we learned in that Super Bowl, which I thought was fascinating. And I think it, it carried over to Super Bowl 51, quite frankly, if you give him a chance when the game's on the line, he'll get it done. Because he wasn't, he did not play great until uh, in that game until you guys got the ball back. And John Madden at the time was even saying they yeah. should just play yeah. for overtime. And Brady and Bill were like, "F that!" And and to me, that was the first glimpse that drive uh, to win the game to set up what would be the first of three Adam Vinatieri game-winning Super Bowls and the four, field goals from the fourth quarter for the Patriots. That drive to me was the first glimpse of. This is who this guy could be. Yeah, I mean, look at the the complementary football teams, the ones that have to have their defense play well, the ones that have to have a player two on special teams and the offense, those 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 teams now that are around still that that like to run the ball and play safe. There's always going to come a time where in the in at the end, the quarterback's gonna have to do something, you know? Right. And we had a guy that was Obviously, it was in him and it was always yeah. in him all the way going back to Michigan. And he was never, you know, caught up in how big the moment was. It was like, I know what to do and I know when to take the calculated shot and I have the ability to do it. And he just took off from there. Yeah. And we'll get into the Super Bowls uh, in a little bit on the other side of the break. But before we get there, you always said to me that Bill Belichick is way funnier than people give him credit for. And we've seen a little bit of that. No, I'm okay. Way okay, funny. Humor. Okay, let's just say funnier. He <laughs> yeah. has somewhat of a sense of humor that people don't see, and I think we've seen that in the subway commercials this off season. But give us a glimpse because you know one of the great things about working with you guys all the time is the stories we would tell away from the set, and this is sort of what the premise of this show is to get those stories out there. Yeah. What were some of the things that Bill sort of said every once in a while? Like, all right, Bill, I didn't think that was coming for you, but I get it. I get it. Yeah, almost like a. I mean, like a self-deprecating type of humor when he it would just be on himself for telling us that we sucked or something like that. And just any type of personality that he would bring into like the, like we had linebackers that were old, you know, and and he you know, reminded us of everyone saying that, you know, you're old men. And, and then one day in our linebacker meeting room, all the chairs are eliminated and there's rocking chairs put in the, in the <laughs> meeting room. And we had to sit in them the entire year because just those little things that how he'd, you, he'd even use his dry humor to motivate. It was all due to motivate. So, I mean, all of that stuff was was something that, I mean, he's not not way, way funnier than those subway commercial that's pretty much it what you see is what you get a lot of times with bill but if you're with him long enough and he knows that you're doing and he knows that you're a guy that gets it he'll open up to you 
Yeah, and, and the old line you told me that once, uh, and I don't know if he was doing it on purpose or not when he was talking about social media and conduct detrimental. What was the line? He, he transposed the two words. Yeah, it was like snap face or you know, whatever. He, he, he my he, face he, and Facebook. What that what it was? Yeah, he knows what he's doing. He knows what the yeah. words are. I mean, Bears tells them what what they are, and he highlights them. And you know, it was that's just what he does. I mean, almost like highlighting highlighting stuff for the team meeting and reading to us and it's like fellas i can't make this up you know and i remember once it was such a funny story and he didn't even know that we would believe it that this guy had said this quote or something like that and he's like this would not to do fellas look and read it and he handed it to vinnie testaverde okay and vinnie instead of quickly reading it and then saying yeah that's what it says it took him like a whole minute to reach in his bag to grab his glasses and like he's in there grabbing his glasses and Bill just he, he, he brings it out of his hand and gives it to Brady to double check it because it was just taking too long. But those type <laughs> of moments, those were fun and memorable. Yeah. And, and if it was the first Super Bowl that announced you guys as a, you know, a potential dynastic team, clearly it was the back to back Super Bowls that put you guys on that landscape. So why don't we take a, a quick break? I have your comeback wine here. Just want you to know that. Yeah. Uh, and that's the first one. What one bottle was already uh, consumed, but this is really good. Uh, we'll take a quick break. We'll come back. We'll talk about that Super Bowl run of back-to-back years and what that was like. We're coming right back. Stay with us. The 55th big game is this weekend. 55. A game this big deserves a big prize, not just some trophy. To finish off the football season, DraftKings Sportsbook, America's top-rated sportsbook app, is giving all players a no-brainer of an offer. To celebrate football's finale, DraftKings Sportsbook is doubling your money if a touchdown is scored in the big game. That's right. All it takes is for one touchdown to be scored, and boom, your money is doubled. Sounds like a no-brainer to me. And don't forget about DraftKings Big Game Prediction Challenge with up to $55 million in prizes up for grabs and instant prizes for everyone who enters the contest. So without further ado, let's make a couple of picks that might help you win some cash. First of all, the over-under is 56. This is a very tantalizing number because these two teams met in Tampa in week 12 of the regular season, and it was a 27-24 game. That would have been under the 56. But I think this is going to be all about offense. I would absolutely take the over in this contest. And then the Chiefs open up at minus three. Also problematic because when they won in week 12, it was a three-point spread. However, I don't think it will be a three-point margin of victory this time around. I think they win by more. So I'm going to take the Chiefs giving the minus three, and Patrick Mahomes and company will indeed win back-to-back Super Bowls. Don't forget to download the DraftKings Sportsbook app now and use the promo code WINGO to get a shot at doubling your money if a touchdown is scored in Sunday's game. That's promo code WINGO to get a shot at doubling your money in Sunday night's season finale. Only at DraftKings Sportsbook, must be 21 or older, New Jersey, Indiana, Colorado only. Restrictions apply. See DraftKings.com slash prediction dash challenge dash DFS for details. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER or an Indiana 1-800-9-WITH-IT, W-I-T-H-I-T. Or in Colorado, 1-800-522-4700. 
Microsoft Teams is helping Priority Bicycles reinvent the way they work. When the pandemic hit, the bike shop had to close their New York City showroom. Now they found a way to reopen by doing virtual visits on Teams. And now the team can meet with two or three times the number of customers they could before, and people from all over the world can visit their showroom. Learn more about their story and others at Microsoft.com Teams. All right, back with Teddy Bruschi. Uh, again, one of my favorite people all my years at ESPN. So you guys won the Super Bowl, Super Bowl 36. And then the next year didn't really go that well. Uh, missed, the, missed the postseason. Jets won the, uh, Jets won the uh, AFC East that year. And then becomes what I think most people would look at as the footprint of what the Patriots would go on to become. The back-to-back Super Bowls of Super Bowls 38 and 39. And people forget there was almost a team mutiny before the start of the 2003 season, because right before or after, I believe, the last preseason games, Bill cut Lawyer Malloy. Yeah. He cut Lawyer Malloy. And I remember watching the feeds come down and watching the look in your eyes and other defenders' eyes. You guys were not happy. Yeah, that was something that really shocked the locker room. Um probably for some of the most aggressive comments I've ever said about the organization, how about how I was like more loyal to my college and my high school than I was to that organization, you know, because I mean, gosh, just you trigger football players that are emotional people. And it's like, boom, this is how I feel. And I'm going to give you what I think right now. So yeah, it was, it was tough because lawyer was a big part of the, uh, the building, the foundation of everything. Like he was my roommate at the old uh, end zone motor in. He was the second round pick. I was a third round pick. So we were very close. He was close with Tom. You know, it, it just, it almost like gave us a sort of a hint of what this is like and what it's going to be because that was the first of other transactions that yeah. you can mark that almost, you know, transitioned us as a different team, you know, maybe a year early or whatever it was, but players moving on to other teams, just me getting used to that's the way it, ha- that's the way it is. And the Malloy example is perfect for that. Yeah. Richard Seymour, one of those as well. Um, yeah. and, but then you go out and lose 31 to nothing week one in Buffalo. And then the steam is really off. When in that early season, when you guys started putting together wins, did you realize, okay, I think we're past it. And I think we're okay. Yeah, that happened pretty quickly because after that, I knew we weren't in the right emotional state. Uh, it's weird. I've been, I've just been texting back and forth with Drew and lawyer about this also. Um, and, uh, you know, the emotional state of the team was just fractured, you know, so but the game after that was in Philadelphia. And I really thought that the guys were like, okay, that's enough. You know, we really need to move on like this coach Bill Belichick is, is, is t- telling us to do, to move on and beat the Eagles. And the quicker we could get that first win, it was going to help, you know? And so that's why I think that that win uh, in Philadelphia, I think McNabb was the quarterback still. I mean, to get that win and like, boom, cut the cord. Okay, we're moving on. I think that really started it. Yeah, and one of my favorite nuggets from that season is you ended up playing Buffalo last week of the regular season, and you beat them by the same score, 31 Yeah, that. that's, we, that's yeah, one of my favorites. In. Yeah, Larry yeah. Izzo was in for me. He was the special team standout we had, and he, like, made a play in the end zone to preserve the uh, to preserve the shutout. Guys went wild, wild, but, you know, it was fitting how that all went. Yeah. Yeah. So you run through the postseason, and you're going to play the Carolina Panthers uh, in Super Bowl Thirty Eight. I think people forget how weird that Super Bowl was for a variety of reasons. Because I think for the first quarter, nobody was moving the ball. And then in the second quarter, it was lights out. 
And then, of course, comes the absolute bleep show of halftime with Janet Jackson and Justin Timberlake. Were you guys aware at all of any of that? Did that filter into the locker room at all? Do you guys have any idea what had happened at halftime? No clue. No clue yeah. about the the ramifications of <laughs> you know the the wardrobe unintended mouth. nudity in the Super Bowl yeah. halftime show. Yeah, yeah. We we had no clue. This is a family show, right? Yeah, it's yeah. like no, the Super Bowl. You get to know what you're going to get at halftime, but not until after the game when it was talked about did did I even find out. But what we had a little shock to the system was I think coming out for the second half and the streaker. It was yeah, streaker yeah, the there. streaker was there too. Yeah. Oh man. I think it was goldenpalace.com. I have it just like boom. You are correct. <laughs> you are correct. It was Golden Palace. This guy had cellophane all over his body. <laughs> private area. And it's like, what in the world is going on? I mean, there's a picture of me standing there on the field because I was on kickoff return. This guy is being carried off by like four security guards after Matt Chatham laid him out. So Matt just boom. Ended the, the whole chase with the security guards. But yeah, that was a crazy, that was a crazy game on the field and off, man. Memorable. Absolutely nuts. And of course, the thing that really set you guys up was John Casey, the Carolina kicker, kicking the ball out of bounds. At, they tied it up and you guys get a short field. When you saw that thing go out of bounds, was there any doubt in your mind? Hey, we're winning this thing. I was like, thanks. <laughs> some plays, some plays you remember for the rest of your life. I mean, they're they're like tackles or something like that. It's like, dude, if I would have just made this one play or made this one adjustment, and that's one for him because we didn't have to go very far. And I know there wasn't that much time left. So, I mean, that was like, okay. He just made it a lot easier on us. I think it's from the 40s. So, yeah, I knew, I knew what was going to happen the way Tom was playing. Okay, so you win that one, and then you get set to go to the offseason. How quickly did Bill bring up the idea of repeating, or did he at all? Because like Pat Riley of the Lakers in the 80s when nobody was repeating in the NBA, you know, he went out there on the championship parade and just, I'm going to mention the word repeat. And everyone in the Lakers was like, are you kidding me? No one repeats as champions. Can't we just enjoy this? He put it out there as early as possible. That's the goal. Did Bill ever do anything like that? Yeah, I don't remember him ever talking about repeat championships or doing it again or about how great we were. Um, players did, though. Players did. I mean, very, 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 very quickly. I mean, coming home on the plane, you know, Roman Pfeiffer, who was a great linebacker for us. Um, yeah, he ended up bringing me over and talking a little bit about what we could do if we won another one. Dude, we, won, we win three out of four. And we'd be a dynasty. And we, we were talking on the plane home, the plane ride home about this stuff because we knew we were still good. I know there was an off seasonal change was coming, but uh, we did it again. That's how we'd be considered. So that talk was, it, it was, uh, we were aware. We were a very aware football team on the field. Yeah. <laughs> and, yeah. Uh, yeah. Yeah. So I, the reason I bring that up is that's what the Chiefs are trying to do. Talk about the mental aspect of that for a minute. How is it different chasing something as opposed to being the thing that everyone is chasing? Uh, man, I think it's all about, a. I mean, you talk about everyone's best effort and everything like that. I think it's really a mental battle of yourselves really. And, and can you suppress your feelings of thinking, yeah, we're the best, we're the best and we're going to do it anyway because we're good. I mean, so it's really suppressing human nature, which is a lot of people can't do because you, you think about how you were successful in the past and you think it should be the same. 
you know, you're not, you're not, you're really, you're really capable of thinking about, no, it can still be different and we can still have success in a different way with different players. So I think that's the biggest hurdle teams have to overcome. Uh, we had a great example with Bill because it, it was almost to the point where he would irritate us about how, you know, he'd treat us as players and like we hadn't done anything, but as long as he was consistent with it, and uh, you're, you're, you're also acting that way in your press conferences, how you are with the media and how you are with the players. Okay. All right. The quarterback also is also a good example. So captains, let's be that way. And all the way down to the kicker, we should have the same attitude. And I think the mental aspect of it is what's toughest. Yeah. And you guys were not the number one seed that year. Pittsburgh was. That was Ben Roethlisberger's rookie year where he set the record before anybody else winning all those uh, first few starts. And you guys had to go to Pittsburgh for the AFC championship game. And it was a frigid, frozen game with a ton of snow. And and one of my one of the memories I have from that game is Dion Branch just waving goodbye to the people at the stadium after that big, long touchdown. What was the mindset going in there, knowing that, hey, you guys technically were the underdog because you were the road team, but you were playing a team that you felt pretty good about the matchup with a rookie quarterback. Yeah. So being the underdog really puts the whole back-to-back thing out of your mind and how how great you are. So that was easy to use as motivation, but um, you know, cause Pittsburgh, they're the one that stopped the streak of 21 games in a row. I mean, they beat us by two touchdowns or something. And on Halloween, I think it was uh, late in the year, late in October. So I mean, we knew it was going to be very hard, you know, so we had a lot of respect for them. But this is I think that's a team we disliked even just as much as the Colts, you know, because it was almost like who's the tougher team. And because that's who Pittsburgh try to be, they try to bully at times. But, you know, we were that team also. So that was a, a game that I mean, I was really emotional after we won that because I just knew how hard it was going to be. Uh, I think that's when Rodney Harrison had a pick six too. And I think that was the one there, but I mean, that beating Pittsburgh always felt good because of who we thought they thought they were like, even after the first one we won in 2001 and Cordell Stewart saying, you know, the better team didn't win or something yeah. like that, that type of thing just rubbed us the wrong way. And we, and we always use that type of stuff to have motivation. Yeah. So we really want to beat them. I need to take a host time out here because I have messed up and I have forgotten the week before that, the divisional game against the Colts at Foxborough for two reasons. One, I was at that game. I brought my son to see that game and we drove into the stadium at Foxborough and it was cloudy. And then early on in that game, it started to snow. It snowed for the three hours of that game. And as soon as the game was over, it stopped snowing. We drove out of the parking lot. We got five minutes away from the stadium. There wasn't snow anywhere else. It was like God himself has just decided, you know what? We're going to throw a snowstorm on Peyton and the Colts in this one game because there's no way they're winning in Foxborough in the snow. I remember being around a, uh, an operations guy, you know, the guys with the yellow jackets, you know, in pregame that were security and um, just sort of standing by him, looking, looking up and seeing the snow. And the guy's like, yeah, I think uh, I think Mr. Kraft has a little hotline to the, to the big man. <laughs> because it, it didn't snow anywhere else but the stadium. Awesome. Yeah, because we knew Peyton hated that stuff. It's like, and that, I think it was that movie, The Outsiders, The Socias and The Greasers. Like, yeah. you know, they were yeah. the, the Greasers. And it's like, let's yeah. just get all dirty and nasty and they hate it. So, yeah, we loved it. 
And you had one of the greatest post-game interviews with Sal after that. You want to change the rules? Change the rules. You want to come into Foxborough? Come on. It's cold. Come on in. Get in here, man. It was one of it was only about 30 seconds, but I was like, dang, Brew is fired up, man. Yeah, and get and, and getting to know Polian, you know, working over yeah. at ESPN is it was fun. Yeah. So we had fun conversations <laughs> in the uh, in the grill. Oh, you all you guys did was grab people and just hold them and all that stuff. And like, hey, we knew the officials, man. They were they were all from Tucson, Arizona, man. I knew them. So it, it was all <laughs> <laughs> so, so then you you get to Jacksonville, and that was one of the worst Super Bowl weeks weather-wise. It was like 38 and rainy the entire time. And it, there was actually one moment where you were still playing. You and, and Vrabes, Vrabel came over and did a demo on the NFL live field. Uh, so not screen uh, passes. Yep. Yeah, screen exactly right on screen passes. And I'll, I'll never forget this because you guys were in the uh, in the green room with us, and I told you that I brought my son Chapman to that game. And we went into the shop at Foxborough. He said, you could pick out any jersey you want. And he was eight years old at the time. And I told him he picked up Teddy Bruschi jersey. And I'll never forget the look in your eye. You, you looked at me with so much sincerity and you said, tell him, thank you. It means a lot that he bought my jersey. And I felt like you meant it. Like you actually, it meant something to you. It did because I, I really believe like, I, I remember bus rides to the stadium or whatever, and then seeing people with my jersey. I just thought that was the ultimate compliment because of, you know, to put a player in their jersey on your back. It's, it's sort of a sign like, I respect what this guy stands for too, you know, as a player, because I would think that it's not just, oh yeah, give me that number because I like the number. It's like, no, I respect the guy. So for me, it was a, it was a huge sign of respect. And I really meant that. Yeah. Well, it, listen, it, it meant a lot here. So then you get to the game and the other iconic image I have of you in that game. And I think a lot of people remember this is on the field before the game. You and your boys are just running around on the field, laughing, cutting up, tackling. Was that a way of you just sort of ease tension or were you just wanting to make sure they enjoyed the moment? Yeah. And plus, you know, the families get so early to the stadium. So I wanted to run them a little bit for my wife, you know, <laughs> so they, they, they wouldn't be as uh, antsy for in, in the stand. So I was like, come on, fellas, let's go. And it turned into like that great moment that they showed during the game. And, yeah. you know, it was, you know, it, it's something that, you know, the kids they'll look at now and it's a special moment, but uh, yeah, that was, that was really, you know, a moment for me that, to see it recaptured on TV and in the NFL films that, uh, you know, I, I, we remember as a family because, I mean, I think that's that's really a part that I broke through like players now. They just the families are all over the place, you know, like really it was like, whoa, you want these guys on the field? I'm like, yeah, forget this, man. Let's go. I didn't care. Yeah. Been yeah. here four times. It's like, forget. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, yeah it was it, it was just something I'll never forget. So. The other thing that's come out recently, like the last couple of years, was the incredible Saturday night speech that Bill gave before you guys were going to play the Eagles. And he had stumbled across a little bit of information, and he shared that with you guys on the Saturday night. And what he had found was the parade route and the city of Philadelphia's planning of how they're going to do things after they win the Super Bowl. Yeah. And he really got up there and read the route to you guys and said, and also, you know, the schools are going to be closed and all this kind of stuff. As he was reading that to you as a player, what was going through your mind? Uh, I mean, you, uh, you, you make a team feel and feel to feel disrespected. You, you, you've got motivation, you know, and that's the way we felt. And, you know, and Bill's his style of, you know, dry sarcasm. Hey, fellas, just just thought you'd want to know. You know, like this. Is, 
this is what it's going to be uh, Broad Street. And, you know, by the way, I saw, you know, schools are going to be closed. Those, so it wasn't like, look at this. This is what they're going to do. It was sort of just sort of teasing, just sort of like he does, like I was talking about earlier, just sort of, you know, jabbing you with it. So it was highly motivational for us. You know, something that, you know, guys bring up during the game too. It's like, oh, I'm not going to have that parade now. You know, things like yeah. that. So it, it worked. It, and that's unusual, right? I mean, would, would you consider yourself someone that gets motivated a lot by those kind of speeches or just that moment and that information? Uh, not a lot because, I mean, even Bill himself would always stress how that type of stuff isn't important, you know, but then only he knew when to break it out at the right time, you know, so that was one of the few times where he'd bring some, bring some of the noise in him, his whole thing. There's a sign on the door, ignore the noise, one of those things. So, but then he brought the noise into us so we could use it as motivation. Didn't do it a lot, but yeah. he had good timing. Well, that yeah, it worked. Uh, 24-21, you win Super Bowl uh, 39 and you've done it. Back-to-back championships. What did, and then there's a picture actually of you with holding the paper and holding up three because it was your third. Yeah, there it is right there. But what what did it mean to you Knowing that because there's there's winning, but there's somebody wins every year, right? There's winning and then there's defending. And people always say it's a completely different team because some players are going off all that kind of stuff. But at the end of the day, repeating as a champion is the hardest thing to do. When did it sink in that we did this? We were able to actually pull it off. Uh, I think you I think moments I think of like that where you of reflection and sort of all encompassing what was possible and what is possible and what you did. I mean, even over the Super Bowl losses and the wins is when you finally get back to your room that night, you know, and it's, it's late and, but it still takes you a little while to get to sleep, even though it's really, really late. And then you sit there and you just think about everything that you've accomplished. And I think that was the moment for me back in my hotel room after the celebration after everything because there's happiness there's 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 family there's friends there's pictures there's there's dancing with the trophy and all that stuff but boom all the noise is quiet now in your room and you realize like dang you know that's three out of four and that was my moment in my hotel room yeah and you didn't have much time in that hotel room because you were on the pro bowl that year and you had to hop had to hop a flight and go to the Pro Bowl, and obviously things changed dramatically for you at that Pro Bowl because that's when you suffered your stroke. When yeah. did you know? When did you know? Wait a minute, something's not right. Oh, that was. Uh, I say coming back from the Pro Bowl, I was home for about a day and a half. Trip, okay, so. okay, gotcha. And I woke up in the in, in the middle of the night with the classic symptoms of a stroke: a severe, unexplained headache, numbness down the left side of my body. I mean, I, but I think, I mean, I'm 31 years old at that point. And so it's like, no, nah, it's not a stroke. It's not a stroke. I go to the bathroom, come back and wake up later that morning around, I don't know, that would have been late, late around nine or 10, but then I couldn't see, I couldn't see. And that's something that an athlete usually doesn't have from a football game. You know, you lose, I lost the left field of vision in both my eyes, they told me. So that's when I finally ended up calling 911 and getting to Mass General Hospital and them telling me that's when I suffered the stroke. So that yeah. was, that was and, and that's one of the reasons why the, the wine is called the comeback because yeah. of your comeback yeah. and you, you were able to make it successfully back. How nervous were you that you might never play again? I wasn't nervous at all. I didn't, I thought it was over. 
You know, it's like because it had never been done before. It's a it's something medical. It's not like an injury. So I didn't even grasp it mentally that it was possible to do. So I mean, I had a conversation. I mean, I don't know how what when it was sometime after my stroke about eventually I told Bill I retire. You know, I'm retiring. So I did that and went home. So I had that sort of cord cutting moment that my career was over. Yeah, but it wasn't. Uh, they found that hole in your heart, which was yeah. the, the reason. And uh, it, that sounds crazy. Yeah, we just got that hole closed up and we're good. <laughs> I mean, I think we're glossing over this like it was a, a little more complicated than that, right? I know. I, and I think, I mean, what told me that I could come back was my sight started to come back. And then it was like, oh, yeah, maybe this is possible. I'm starting to feel better now. Um, yeah, the surgery was something, um, I mean, coming back, I mean, that's what I had to have checked the most because I recovered from the stroke, um, but still having the device in your heart and playing contact football. I mean, talking to doctors, nothing's really black and white. There's a lot of gray, you know, it's like, all right, doc, when I get hit, is this device going to move? You know what I mean? In my heart, any, uh, it shouldn't. <laughs> <laughs> Thanks. Can I get a little Throw more? Throw me a bone, man. <laughs> it's like, no, you're going into a data-free zone and we'll be filling out the information as you go. So they, they kept their eyes on me every couple of weeks and whew, that first season back was an emotional roller coaster, man. Yeah. And, and listen, obviously you go through the undefeated season. It didn't finish the way you want. We're not going to go there because we've talked about that a million times with you. And this is about rings and winning. But there is a great story from that season that I think you need to share with everybody because there was the Monday night game against the Ravens where you guys would have lost if Rex Ryan didn't call a timeout on a down that they stopped you on fourth down. That would have been the end of the game. Oh, I always thank Rex for that too. Yeah. yeah. Well, you should because there's no reason for him to recall that timeout. But he does. So the play doesn't run. So you guys go on to win. And you said to me one time that you had a conversation with Bill after that game that really got you guys back on track to make sure you ran that season undefeated. Yeah, that was, I mean, that was a moment where you get leaders that are comfortable enough with their head coach. I mean, I believe you, you, you should be able to have that open door policy and talk to them to, even if things are done wrong. And I didn't like Bill's post game message after the Raven game. He sort of was flippant about it and mentioned that, you know, you should have won this game and we're moving on to the next one. And, and I didn't like that sort of mood that he sort of gave us. I mean, it was almost like pumping us up that like, this is just one we should have got. So yeah, Bill and I had a conversation. I took him off the bus, actually. I remember that. Yeah. I said, I want to talk to you. I took him off the bus, you know, sort of express my displeasure about the message that he was sending the team. <laughs> and he took it to heart and was like, okay, I got you. And so I, I voiced my opinion. And the very next day, which is make this story so funny, is that we got into the team meeting room and he is just pissed. And, and he's trying to get the guys back refocused, I think, from what I told him. And so he said, turn out the lights. I got some plays for you to look at. Yeah, you won the game, but look at this shit. You know, all this stuff. <laughs> so anyway, anyway, he's like, and the first play he shows is me. <laughs> it's me and Junior Seau. And we're, talk we're taking like one false step on a run read and it's like, how many, how many years of experience do you two have? 50 and you're still making wrong steps. And I'm like, okay, here we go. The reset button's being pushed. So yeah, I think I had a, I had a, 
I had a really good relationship with Bill. I mean, one that I haven't spotted, you know, since that, you know, I mean, I went a lot, I went through a lot of things with him, his departure, his return, you know, wins, losses, a five and 11 season that a lot of these players with him now haven't really gone through, um, I guess until this year. Yeah. Um, you know, I, I, he had an open communication policy with me, especially, and, and that was a good one. That was a good example of it. <laughs> I, but you knew that you would be the first example after you got me. You had to, you had to know that's the way that was going down. <laughs> what, what did it mean to you and your retirement that he called you the practically perfect player? I don't know. Was the word practically even in there? It might have been just perfect. <laughs> Am I shorting you? Did I, did I, did I, am I shorting you? I might. I don't want to short you. For those, again, for people that don't understand, if you if you're watching this on YouTube, over Teddy's shoulder is a bowling pin. That's from his 300 perfect game. Okay, yeah. Teddy. Teddy is not someone who is not going to let people know how things went down with him. So if it was okay, what did it mean to you when he called you the perfect player? Uh I was shocked. I mean, I think I I, I got a shock to the system even after after I retired in terms of. I mean, the communication even improving within with him and I. I mean, I think I think there is just something that he has with his players while they're playing for him that there has to be a divide. There just has to be because there eventually has to be the moment where he brings you into the office and says, we appreciate everything you've done for us. I had that moment myself. You know what I mean? When when it was over for me in 2008. So. I think it makes it easier for him, but hearing that, you know, that the ultimate compliment from him and just, you know, he's saying so much positive stuff is really, was really like eye opening for me and realizing yeah. that I really may be done. I really, I, I, yeah. I think I am, I'm done now because if he's yeah. saying that now, you know, yeah. you're done. So yeah. yeah, that was a great, that was a great thing that he did. And you know, I think our relationship is even, you know, progressed since then. And I think that's just how, how he sees the player coach relationship. Well, that divide clearly has worked for him up until this year. And the divide uh, clearly is something that those Patriot teams can still hold above everybody else. Back to back champs until someone does it. The Chiefs are trying to. What advice would you give anybody that's in that situation? And, and, they, and, and they're sort of facing that monster right now. Yeah, it, it's so real for the Chiefs right now. I mean, I, I think the, the biggest, I mean, I've, I've been, I mean, I have won and lost in every round of the playoffs. So it's like I have so many experience to draw back on, and they've done the hardest thing, which is put them in the best situation going into the playoffs, getting the number one seed, getting the bye. Uh, what... I always would love to watch even when we were in it and had the buy because just a little reminder that wins that doesn't. So it's good for you. But for them, as long as they don't realize what they're trying to do. Yeah. You yeah. know, because if you realize and, and let it get into your psyche of what you're trying to do for some, it's too big. And for some, that's just, you know, a distraction. So Keep their minds clear because they've got the team that 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 can do it. I, I totally believe that. Yeah. Well, their minds are clear at the moment, and uh, my mind was clear every Friday for a few years. Where you stink, and I would do the uh, the tape offs on a football Friday in NFL Live. Maybe one of my favorite moments uh, of all my years at ESPN, brother. Yeah. Always good to catch up with you. Um, glad you're well. Glad you're safe. And uh, thanks for being on the show. And uh, don't be a stranger. All right. And tomorrow, to more of this. Yeah. To more of this. Yeah. All right, brother. Yeah. Take care, bud. 
So that'll do it for this episode of Half Forgotten History. Once again, heartfelt thanks to my good friend, Teddy Bruschi, for his insights on what it will take for the Chiefs to do what his team last did, the New England Patriots, repeat as Super Bowl champs. Coming up, though, on next week's episode, a man that Bill Belichick once said could go into the Pro Football Hall of Fame based on his special teams plays alone. But he also had a tremendous amount of great defensive plays. One of the greatest safeties to ever play the game. From the U, Hall of Famer Ed Reed. That's next time on Half Forgotten History.